I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. Today, we're excited to share episode three in our special series produced in collaboration with Omidyar Network called Beyond Tradeoffs, Investing Across the Returns Continuum. There's a lot of folks, especially sort of in the institutional space, who only want to travel in the market rate side of the pool. And I think in our eyes, that that's a little bit lacking. Part of you know, what is necessary are people who are gonna make the investments and in things that wouldn't happen, you know, if all people had was commercial capital. That's Omid Sateh, head of impact and responsible investing at Prudential Financial. Omid spoke with Impact Alpha editor David Bank about Prudential's 80-20 approach for an impact portfolio that's nearing $1 billion. Let's jump right into their conversation. Hello, I'm here with Omid Sate, the head of impact and responsible investing at Prudential Financial. Welcome, Omid. Thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to situate you where you are. Are you in uh, downtown Newark at uh, Prudential's uh, headquarters there, uh, right above the Prudential Center? I sure am. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of different office buildings in town, and it's, uh, I'm sitting in one of them looking, looking at the city. You can't really you can't really miss uh, Prudential when you go through Newark. Um, so uh, I, I know exactly where you are. <laughs> um, we, we welcome you to this series. It, um, it's called Beyond Tradeoffs. Uh, you had a terrific essay in a series that the Omidyar Network helped produce uh, around that title, Beyond Tradeoffs, and talked about Prudential's impact investing, which I'm eager to to dive into. But I, I'm asking everybody at the at the top of the conversation just a simple question, which is, what does lie beyond tradeoffs? So I think for us, it's all about what we would call impact value add, which is this idea of what do you do during, before and after the investment to actually increase the impact uh, of the types of projects you're invested in. Prudential actually is like the largest impact investor that kind of nobody really knows about. I think that was a little more true a few years ago. Now maybe some people are getting a clue because you've got, well, I know, I remember you had a goal to get to a billion dollars of impact investing in your portfolio by 2020. Where are you at? Sure. So as of the end of the year, our AUM is about $860 million. Um, and the thing to note about that is that's, that's a portfolio. So as we get repaid, we're continually reinvesting. And so the goal uh, all along has been to get to a steady state, you know, billion dollar plus portfolio. Uh, we anticipate being there sometime this year and, you know, from forever forward, essentially being able to be at or above that level. Uh, so we're, we're quite excited about being largely on track to hit that milestone. So you'll cross the billion dollar mark and you'll be a, what we call a billion dollar baby uh, uh, maybe sometime this year. Um, well, that's impressive because you have to put out quite a bit of money each year, which is no easy feat, which we're going to also get to. But again, just you are the head of the office of the impact investing unit. So you are do this is your portfolio. You're doing the underwriting, the pipeline, the portfolio management, the whole fund. You're, you're, a, you're a billion dollar fund manager. Is that not right? Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much accurate. And I think one of the things that you know, we talk a little bit about in the article is that in, in doing this work, I think we have uh, done it in a pretty broad and diverse sort of way. So we largely are directly investing those assets. About 70% of those investments are direct. Uh, but another 30% of what, what we do are commitments to third-party fund managers. And we do those that investing uh, both in sort of you know, real estate and physically-oriented strategies, but an equal component in, in investing in exciting businesses and social projects. And so it's uh, across all of the spectrum, I would say, of, of different invest, impact investing opportunities. So it's a very broad portfolio in terms of its uh, investment flexibility. Uh, and that's part of you, you mentioned real estate. You, you have a real estate background, I know. 
I do. So I, I began my career actually as a real estate attorney and then sort of early in my career had the chance to go down to New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina. And I was there as uh, the person sort of running uh, real estate development for one of the rebuilding agencies and spent uh, over four years in New Orleans working on a whole bunch of incredibly complicated uh, neighborhood redevelopment challenges. And it was a, a moment, I think, sort of unlike you know, almost any other, where the city had gone through some epic devastation. Shortly thereafter, we as a country ended up in the teeth of the financial crisis. Uh, and at the same time, trying to sort of rebuild on an unprecedented scale. And so during that job, I had the chance to work with a whole range of different actors from across the country, philanthropic, nonprofit, for-profit. Uh, it's how I got to know the folks at Prudential. And what I saw and sort of what attracted me eventually to coming over and sort of working for the, the Prudential Impact Investing Portfolio was that how important it was to have the kind of nuanced and flexible uh, impact-oriented capital that could really make a difference um, you know, from what I was seeing firsthand during a time of crisis in New Orleans, but since we've taken over this work, um, you know, we see these opportunities and these challenges, you know, all across both the U.S. and the world about where, you know, sort of more creative, more thoughtful capital can be really crucial in unlocking solutions at scale. Okay, that's a terrific setup. So I just want to also now just set a little baseline for Prudential because you guys in this series, frankly, are, are the example of what uh, folks like to talk about as institutional investor. Um, but but Prudential, obviously, a particular kind of institutional investor, namely a, an insurance company, has a billion-dollar impact fund sit inside of a, what is it, a $1.4 trillion asset uh, under management at, at Prudential um, overall. How, how, how do you fit? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a couple of important you know, things that are very distinct to Prudential. And it's part of why we've, we've so committed to impact investing. Uh, one is that the company itself was founded uh, in the city of Newark and has stayed in Newark. Uh, stayed in Newark during some incredibly difficult times for the city and has always remained, I think, a, a leading corporate citizen. And so issues of social justice, poverty, some of the themes that people are talking about when they're talking about impact investing are much more real. These are not just abstractions, not just ideas. Uh, they're part of the lived experience for senior leaders. And so that experience, I think, has led the company as a whole to have a deep sense of purpose. You see it in its commitment to impact investing. You see it in the commitment to other parts of CSR, it's philanthropic giving. Uh, you probably see it most present actually, quite frankly, in how our senior leaders devote so much of their time to different organizations in the community. Um, so that sense of purpose is a big part of sort of how we got here. I'd say the second part of sort of what's made us distinct is that uh, we're, we have the good fortune to both be a large asset owner. So as you said, 1.4 trillion something something. Uh, so a lot <laughs> of assets. Uh, but we're also an asset manager as a company. And so we have both the capacity to find and make investments as well as a great deal of capital. And so sometimes in this impact investing world, you've had people who are on one side of the table or the other. They either want to be investors but don't have capital or they have capital but not the capacity to make their own investments. And we've had both. And in a field that was relatively nascent, having both I think has allowed us to, to go to market a, a great deal more quickly. Um, and then I think the third part of sort of the, the special sauce, if you will, is that when you're a life insurance company, and that's the predominant kind of insurance that the company does today, uh, and an asset management firm and a retirement firm, we are very much thinking about sort of you know, the long term uh, in how we invest, how we manage risk, uh, and how we think about sort of going after problems. And that actually in some ways allows you to take a little bit of sort of R&D risk, uh, including in how you go to to look at investment strategies. And so I think those three features 
uh, have been pretty crucial to, to what we've done here. Insurance companies are supposed to be uh, expert in, in long-term risks, um, and, and if you take those into account, it, it sometimes gives uh, investments a different flavor. That's, that's absolutely right. And, and I think particularly for the impact space, one of the things that we've seen has been really crucial to, to our portfolio is that, and we'll talk more about it, I think, in the article, but the people who we sort of invested in when they were small and nascent and just getting started, when, when they're successful and when we're successful, we know that they'll be sources of future transactions 5, 10, 15 years out. Uh, and if you look at it, that, those kind of extended long-term investment relationships make some of the extra work to find those, those individuals or those projects uh, a lot easier to swallow. All right, well, let's, let's dig in. So your investments are on the balance sheet of Prudential, just like any other corporate investments. Is that, if I understand it, is that right? That's correct. These are these are assets of the insurance company, and they're used for the for the purposes ultimately of supporting the liabilities of the the organization. So it's not some other bucket of philanthropic money that that nobody worries about. This goes on. The the, the shareholders worry about this as well as management. I met, I guess, right? That's correct. And so, therefore, you're under some constraints. So just tell us how you think about allocating capital. In, you know, in that kind of institutional context. Yeah, and so I should say, I mean, we, we do have a, a terrific uh, legally independent foundation, and we do manage some assets for them. It's quite small. It's about 20, 25 million. Um, and that's a separate legal entity, and that's really used to sort of support the nonprofits that are borrowers um, or that are, sorry, grantees of, our, of the Prudential Foundation. But on the corporate side, which is sort of the billion dollars that we talk about, uh, what we've done is we've divided the portfolio, I think, into two fairly distinct uh, components. Uh, the first is what we call our catalytic assets, and that's about 15 to 20 percent of what we do. And then the other 80 percent is what we call sort of the main or the sort of standard portfolio. And internally, we, we use those quite differently. So the, the sort of standard portfolio is 100 percent used in the process of sort of asset liability matching. And those are the sort of more tested end of, of what we do in the impact space. Okay, let's just pause for a second. When you say asset liability matching, that's a that's a term of art in your world. So right, right. No, that. I should say it. it's true. It's, you know, the rest of the world doesn't think that way. Uh, but what that means in sort of in in sort of more standard English is that uh, the the returns from the investments are used to generate uh, the returns that will ultimately allow the company to be able to pay beneficiaries the claims on things like life insurance policies. So that sets a kind of hurdle rate or a target uh, return that you need to hit. That's right. And you've got to also be able to, I think, make sure that those things have appropriate risk mitigants and safeguards and all of the other parameters that go into making those fo forecasts. Um, and so you're saying 80% of this 860 going to a billion dollar fund is in that bucket that is what in the lingo of impact investing would be called risk adjusted market rate returns? That's correct. So what, what kind of investments, Omid, are, are in that part of the portfolio? So what's interesting, right, is that I think, and this is sort of, you know, with the catalytic and the main, it isn't about the, the type of investments, let's say, in terms of the sectors they're in or the industries they're in or even necessarily in the counterparties. Um, it's often about sort of, sort of where the stage of the problem is. And so there are opportunities that, you know, where it's untested, there's no track record, it's you know, early stage, and those are the types of things that we do in the catalytic. But typically, once they come along to the, the main portfolio, there's enough sort of data on past performance or future predictability or all the other kind of indicators that allow you to make an assessment of whether it's uh, a risk-adjusted opportunity. Um, and, and I think both portfolios are sort of work in symbiosis, and both are crucial, but, but that's sort of what I think 
would characterize the main is that it is sort of when things are a little bit more mature. Uh, and in terms of what types of things we do in that portfolio, it is still stuff that I think is early stage looked at in the context of where the rest of the company's assets are, right? Which are much more mature, typically things that are gonna be found in the public markets. Uh, these are still, you know, still private assets, privately held. Um, and so it, it definitely isn't, you know, the same as the public markets, but it's also not the kind of first time capital you might be seeing in the catalytic portfolio. You have, a, you have enough track record now, I imagine, to know what the returns are on that, on that 80% uh, bucket, on that, on that market rate bucket. Exactly. And, and that is doing exactly what we hoped it would do, which is to generate sort of, you know, certainly risk-adjusted returns and sometimes um, above that as well. And what, so what, tell been, me a little bit about the sometimes above that. Yeah, I mean, I think, in, in, so on the one hand, when you tell people you're, you're getting great returns, there's always sort of a suspicion, which is if you're getting great returns, why isn't somebody else doing this? Uh, I think particularly with what we've sort of found is a couple of things. One, the types of investments we're in are, are the return profile might be attractive, but to get up to speed to just simply understand these sectors and understand sort of what's going on, there is a, a very high degree of brain damage. Um, you know, part of the great part of so much of the impact investing landscape is that these are complicated sectors, complicated problems, government overlays different and unusual forms of you know, payment streams that have to be understood. If you're willing to sort of put in the time and energy and effort to understand those markets, uh, we do think you know, from an investment perspective, you can generate you know, good returns, if not you know, slightly better than if you were in the, the more sort of vanilla parts of the economy. But there is uh, you know, some serious brain damage associated with these sectors. I think a second thing that we're seeing, and this is sort of starting to prove out, is that not all parts of the economy lend themselves to an impact orientation. Um, but certainly within our main portfolio, what we look at are, are there pretty strong alignments between the impact thesis and the financial motivations? And so I'll give you an example. Uh, we've been doing a lot with companies that are training um, underemployed individuals for, for sort of higher skill occupations. And it turns out that the, the measure we look at from an impact perspective is how much do these training programs cost relative to how much do the students' incomes grow? You can think of it as like a return on student investment. That's a great measure of, of impact. It's also a great measure, though, of sort of how operationally efficient and well-run the training provider is. And so in that sector, we see having an impact orientation as, as being sort of crucial to finding the best companies. Um, and also crucial to finding the best managers. And so when you've chosen the sector right, and there is that strong alignment, then I think it actually almost becomes somewhat intuitive that doing well from an impact perspective would, would lead you to do well from a financial perspective. Well, that leads to your concept of impact value added, because I was going to ask if the, and I think as you said, people do ask you, if these are such good, good investments, you know, wouldn't others make them, um, I guess you're saying one differentiator is there's a sort of information disequilibrium that you guys uh, correct by working, I imagine, quite hard. But how do you, how, how are these impact investments if they're, if they're above market? Everybody always asks that question. Yeah. So I think one of the things that, that to me is sort of, is helpful sometimes to sort of analogize to is that in the, in the traditional financial markets, we don't think anything of seeing an activist hedge fund investor and an index fund in the same company, right? They are often invested in the same company, but what they do once they're invested is, is radically different, right? I mean, the index fund is holding that company according to very algorithmic passive rules, and the activist is out there 
doing all sorts of things to try to sort of change either the, the way the company's behaving or just cleave it up into pieces or do all sorts of other things. But they could easily be in the same company. And so I think the same logic to some extent, and this is what the article tries to talk about, um, is somewhat useful to think about impact investing. It isn't that the what is different for impact investing, it's the how. And the how is sort of how we look at, and, and the, sort of this phrase of sort of impact value add, which is when we look at an investment, we look at it with real diligence around the sort of, you know, both the historic and the proposed impact. We try to work in collaboration with entrepreneurs and management to grow and build the impact side of the business. And then we're trying to be quite sensitive about sort of impact during change of control or going public, or if there's a, you know, some distress in the company. Uh, all of those are, are behaviors and are behaviors on how we do our investing that are radically different from somebody else who might well be invested in the same company. Um, and I think that getting to that sort of mind shift, I think is really, really important because if we try to define impact investing simply by what the investments are, um, you'll always be in this sort of strange, sort of counterintuitive landscape where people, it won't make sense to people. Yeah. So, Meet, is there an example of a time when it made a difference that you were an impact investor after the investment you helped that investment, you, you served as a kind of activist investor that you're talking about? Yeah. So I think one of the things sort of to say is I think, you know, the, the term activist sort of in the financial markets often means sort of adversarial. We, we definitely see ourselves as much more sort of a in deep collaboration with the, the companies and partners we invest with. Um, so I can give you a couple of examples of sort of what that means in practice. Uh, for some of the the job skills providers that we've been looking at, uh, a real barrier to entry for their programs is that they're not part of sort of any kind of formalized student loan system. And so you have these interventions that can help people who are underemployed or unemployed get skills that make them more employable, but how do they pay to go to these programs? Um, and so we've worked with our partners uh, and some partners sort of from the philanthropic side of the company to think about ways in which you can use some of these income share agreements, which is this idea of instead of sort of forcing people into debt, allowing them to pledge a, a, a future portion of their, their earnings from new jobs to pay for the program. And so we've partnered some of those ISA providers, uh, some of the folks working at sort of the forefronts of what they call social finance, with some of these companies to think about ways in which um, they can deploy these products, which would allow the companies to serve a much broader landscape of people. Um, and that's, I think, a great example of something that has a, a huge you know, impact value add, but if it works, also sort of expands the addressable market for these companies. There is the other 20%. So the 80%, as we said, is, is targeted at market rate. What's the other 20%? So the other 20% is, is the stuff that we call catalytic. And I think you know, one of the things I also sort of want to you know, be on record for is that there are really important, vital opportunities that are absolutely not market rate. And there's a lot of folks, especially sort of in the institutional space, who only want to travel in the market rate side of the pool. And I think in our eyes, that, that's a little bit lacking. Part of, you know, what is necessary are people who are going to make the investments in things that wouldn't happen, you know, if all people had was commercial capital. And so for us, the, the catalytic portfolio reflects that, that acknowledgement. It's deeply important. Um, and, and, to give, and what we try to do with it, therefore, is use it for things that are either outsized from a social benefit, outsized from a sort of potential strategic benefit, um, 
and especially for sort of investments in strategies or projects where while the first iteration might not be proven, if it works in subsequent iterations, it'll be able to cross over into more traditional forms of, of capital. One of the nifty examples uh, cited in the article is, is sort of these new financing mechanisms, one of which is like stormwater credits, that if you can have ways of more effectively managing a, a city's runoff that doesn't involve big industrial things, maybe it involves swales and natural you know, habitats and whatnot, um, that you can get paid for that, that can help finance the project. You guys have been involved in at least one of those. Yeah, so no, that's a super, uh, super example of this work where there was a notion that you could build natural infrastructure, green infrastructure, uh, bioswales and things like that to absorb stormwater and do that much more cost effectively than almost any other mechanism for absorbing stormwater. Um, and the way that Washington, D.C. had sort of set it up was that they wanted to create a mechanism where there would be credits for sort of producing this kind of infrastructure. But at least initially, there was no price associated with those credits because they wanted it to be a market. And so when we finance that first wave of green infrastructure, it was absolutely impossible. We could guess, but it was impossible to look at any piece of data as to what the eventual price of those credits was going to be. Fast forward a couple of years, once you've built it, once the market's established, once those credits trade, we now have you know, enough pricing data to be able to say, okay, this is how much we can finance for green infrastructure, and this is how much of a return it needs to generate to make things work. And that's something that can go in our main portfolio. Uh, and to give you a sense, that first sort of pilot phase was a couple million. The, but once it went to the main side, we could do 14, 15 million at a pop. And so that kind of logic, I think, is something that we see quite often between what we call catalytic and the kind of shift from catalytic to traditional opportunities. And you've also been working a lot on the actually practice of, of investing itself. And there's been a lot of attention recently is it's not just sort of what you invest in, but, and you mentioned it is how you invest and then sort of who is it doing the investing? Yeah, so a great example of something that's also in our catalytic portfolio and I think is deeply important to us as a company. Uh, we made a commitment around something we call sort of, you know, inclusive ventures, which was a commitment to really look at the fact that if, if you look at the venture capital industry in particular, but all of asset management more broadly, there's a shocking lack of diversity. And so I think the latest stats I saw said that, you know, 1% of venture capital partners are African-American, 7% are women. Not surprisingly, 1% of founders are African-American and 7% of founders of venture-backed companies are women. And so the inequities in the funding landscape track back down to the composition of the kind of companies that get funded. And this is really disturbing, I think disturbing to a lot of us. Uh, on the other hand, I think, you know, and so one of the things we started to do with the inclusive ventures portfolio was to make commitments, typically to sort of first or second time uh, venture managers of color or women-led venture capital firms. And, you know, it's a, it's a great initiative. The, the difficult part, and I think this is sort of the honest conversation that people need to have, is that there's also a lot of data out there that, on average, subscale first-time managers and lots of assets are going to struggle compared to more established managers. And so unless you're willing to take some, you know, on a, on a portfolio basis, of course, but some sort of drag on returns to support greater inclusivity, um, you're always going to be sort of stuck in this position of having to sort of square a circle in which there's both sort of historic data that sort of suggests not to do first-time funds and yet a moral imperative 
to try to be able to sort of create greater diversity. No one ever says if, 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 you, if no one invests in first time funds, there's not going to be a lot of first time funds. And so that's, you know, that's, I mean, that, that kind of pithy expression also sort of deeply shows why if all you can do is the commercial side, you'll be lacking. And so having this resource that we can do things that are catalytic, that can change the shape of an industry or change sort of entrenched patterns is really, really important. Isn't there a little bit of, at least a little bit of counter, countervailing data that says uh, first-time fund managers and even smaller funds are, you know, more motivated, more nimble, you know, um, you know, because they're, they're, they are proving themselves and, 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 and working harder? You know, it's interesting. I think in the impact space, you've seen some really positive things associated with first-time managers. And I think that's, that's some of what you've said, as well as the fact that you've seen a lot of talented folks moving into the space. And long-term historic data doesn't necessarily have as much applicability, I think. So I think, especially when you're in new and emerging fields, um, I think there's a lot to be said for sort of looking at people who are doing things for the first time. I think if you look at sort of the mainstream markets and sort of on a historic and kind of a regression basis, there is some data to suggest that you know, over time and over enough funds in kind of traditional sectors, um, the average you know, won't be quite as strong. But again, you know, looking at averages, I don't think speaks that much to sort of individual managers. Right, find, find, find the best, not the average. Um, the, the, this also speaks to, to what I think you're getting at, which is come under the name of racial lens investing and, and seeing things specifically as tools to both promote racial equity and, and redress you know, past uh, inequities. Um, and, and you guys have made a, a number of investments on that front. Right. So, you know, one of the things I think we're really excited about is our, our partnership with Kresge and Casey Foundations uh, to do something around sort of trying to address some of these, you know, deep structural, you know, racial inequities. Um, and that partnership is really focused primarily on a set of uh, cities in, in sort of the, the southeast. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because for us, it's... One of uh, which is New Orleans, first, is, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good full, full circle. Absolutely. And, and that partnership, I think, is, is really sort of exciting for us because it's, you know, it's, a, it's a great example, I think, of, of two really you know, leaders in the philanthropic space uh, coming and saying, look, this is something we want to go after and tackle. Is there a way we can you know, use some of sort of the established investment experience to drive capital to some things that maybe you wouldn't or to, to put more than you might be able to otherwise? And so you know, within our catalytic portfolio, we, we are somewhat limited ultimately on assets. And so the idea was, could we take some of those catalytic investments and with uh, guarantees from those foundations for some of the loss sharing, could we expand deeper into some of the themes around sort of racial equity that we really wanted to do more around? Um, and so that's what that partnership has been doing. Well, let's take another uh, deeper look at that because that is interesting. So now there's a $100 million commitment from Prudential, but it's backstopped, as you say, by um, I think it, it was at twenty million dollars from from the Kresge and and Casey uh, foundations, and so they're de-risking you to make it possible for you to make that investment. But why do you need that risk? If you're willing to take the risk, you know, as you said, for the ultimate impact, why do you need the risk mitigation? Right. So I think I mean I think it just allows us to do that much more of it. You know, I think if ultimately the the assets we have in the catalytic bucket are, are pretty scarce, um, and Having just just so I understand, this makes this the risk enhancement lets it move from the catalytic to the to the market rate bucket. Exactly. Where there's more money. Right, where there's more money, and for where we've got more risk appetite, and so it basically allows us to almost double uh, what we can do in the catalytic space. 
I see. So, um, and when you say allows, that means allows under your own underwriting criteria that, as we talked about earlier, comes, you know, at least partly comes down from corporate, right? Partly comes down from corporate, partly comes down from just how insurance companies are regulated. So <laughs> I don't want to get people to think that we're just sitting out there making our own rules. So, But just to be clear, you, you're, you're, I mean, what came up in that, in that context was, oh, these foundations are now mitigating the risk of a private insurance company. Why should they use their precious uh, philanthropic money to, to backstop a private uh, financial institution? Yeah. Right. And so I think, you know, a couple of things to know. One, the the bottom tranche, the risk loss sharing, we are participating in that. So we are all sharing some of the risk uh, in the most bottom tranche of things. So it's definitely sort of a very equitable partnership in that way. Um, and again, I think the the aspiration, of course, is that one, they won't actually, you know, hopefully they won't have to use any of the, the risk mitigation. Um, so there isn't actually sort of a loss to anyone. But secondly, there's no question this has allowed us to go into places it would have been impossible to, to serve otherwise. Terrific. So um, it's another example of impact value add, putting the kind of complicated deals together, as you said, um, that uh, maybe are a headache for others to, to tackle. Uh, Omid, it's always a pleasure and an education to, to speak with you. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. This was, this was my pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment special series, Beyond Tradeoffs. Find out more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. We'll continue the conversation on the Beyond Tradeoffs channel on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with Omidyar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.